I want to welcome everybody to the Mershon Center and what is actually the second of the citizenship talks for this year. Um, I'm going to allow um, uh, Mike Neblo, our co-sponsor and the principal agent, and uh, bringing Professor Thompson here to introduce Dennis. But um, I did want to uh, register for the first time this year. Our thanks to uh, the Mershon Center and Rick Herman, who make citizenship possible. Uh, and also alert you to the last two speakers in the citizenship series. Um, uh, they will be Robert Pippin from the University of Chicago, who tells me he will either be speaking on Hegelian aesthetics or modern American film. Uh, and uh, and uh, uh, Dick Bauman from uh, the University of uh, Indiana Bloomington, cultural linguistics, anthropology, folklore. Uh, that date is hard. We know that date to be April 4. Um, and again, thank you for coming. Let me say that um, uh, rumor has it that talk will go for approximately 45 minutes. Uh, there will be a Q&A afterwards, and then you're all welcome to join us for a reception uh, outside. And without further ado, let me introduce my colleague, Mike Neblo from Political Science. Well, I want to thank you all for coming and thanking the, uh, thank the Mershon Center for co-sponsoring this event. Um, I'm very, very pleased today to introduce Dennis Thompson, uh, who's going to talk to us. Den uh, Dennis uh, is a professor of government um, and the Alfred North Whitehead Professor of Political Philosophy at Harvard University. He's also a professor of public policy at the John F. Kennedy School of Government and founding director of the Edmund J. Safra Foundation Center for Ethics. Professor Thompson is the leading theorist of political ethics working today and has made foundational contributions to several debates in democratic theory as well. His work is marked by creatively interweaving philosophical concerns with detailed case studies in politics. Um, and this, this concern goes back to what I think is his first book, uh, Seminal, uh, The Democratic Citizen, Social Science and Democratic Theory in the 20th Century, which if it hadn't been taken might have been uh, the title of, of my book, book manuscript as well. <clears throat> Um, we and can, we can make a deal. I yeah, think yeah. It's you out could of uh, uh, <laughs> sub sublet the, uh, uh, the the title. Uh, running, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, running all the way up to the presentation you'll be hearing today, which uh, is very squarely about um, uh, citizenship. Uh, Professor Thompson is also the author with, game, uh, with Amy Gutman of Why Deliberative Democracy and uh, one of the most important uh, books in the field of deliberative democracy, Democracy and Disagreement, um, as well as Restoring Responsibility, um, Just Elections, John Stuart Mill and Representative Government, Ethics in Congress, and Political Ethics in Public Office, which won the American Political Science Association's Kammermer Award for the best political science publication in the field of U.S. national policy in 1987. I'm very pleased to introduce you, Dennis Thompson. Thank you very much, Michael. Um, generous introduction. I, I will give you all, all the titles, titles um, of, of books, that, especially even ones that I haven't used yet. I have probably, like most of you, I have many titles that I haven't yet written. Uh, it's a real pleasure and honor to be here and to talk at the center in, on the subject of citizenship. And indeed, I will be talking about real citizens um, making real decisions. Uh, alas, they're Canadian citizens. I had to go there to find something that, that uh, worked. I'm not uh, Michael Moore, but um, uh, I will be talking about a Canadian experiment that 
uh, seems to have almost worked. Uh, in uh, British Columbia, just three years ago now, uh, 160 randomly chosen ordinary citizens uh, gathered to decide whether to change the province's electoral system, and if so, how to change it. This was, you don't get to say this sort of thing very often, I think this was the first time in the history of democracy, going back even, Alan, to, to Athens, I suppose, the first time in the history of democracy that a body of randomly chosen citizens have been authorized to recommend, officially to recommend a major change in the electoral system on a statewide basis. Since then, since this meeting three years ago, this institutional innovation of citizens' assembly has been adopted by two other Canadian provinces and also in the Netherlands. Uh, the new Prime Minister of England has hinted that he may institute something like this. Uh, the, there is a bill in the California uh, legislature right now, which I think is a good idea, uh, that would establish a similar body as a kind of filter on the initiative process there, which most people agree is kind of run out of control. So the idea would be you have a citizens' assembly as it, which uh, you wouldn't get your initiatives on the ballot until it had been filtered through a citizens' assembly. The idea is to sort of fight this excess, excess of democracy with a little bit of democracy itself. Now, why I think this is an important institution and why I think you should take it seriously, too. I mean, I took it seriously enough to travel all the way from Boston to Vancouver several times. Now, you, you might well think that you don't need a, an excuse to go to Vancouver. It's a, especially from Boston um, in the seasons that I went. But uh, there were three reasons that this attracted me, and some of them may apply to you. One, it is a historic institution, uh, a historic innovation, um, I should say. It's a new way uh, to get citizens involved in making complex decisions about a whole political system. And anybody who cares about democracy ought to care uh, about how, whether it works or not. Another reason uh, is for anybody interested in electoral reform, the, the assembly really is a, uh, not only a new way to bring it about. Electoral reform always in the past was done by elites. Uh, but it's also an occasion for thinking about different electoral systems from the perspective of voters, not sort of from the, only the perspective of parties or, or uh, what political scientists think. I had still another reason. Um, I had written about electoral reform, but I'd also written and thought a lot about deliberative democracy. And here, really, there aren't many examples of deliberative democracy in action. Uh, that aren't, This was not a laboratory experiment. This wasn't a weekend in Austin, Texas, um, sponsored by some political scientist. Uh, it's not even a one-time meeting in a small town or a series of meetings. Basically, that's what most of the deliberative democracy 
cases were, at least in this country. This was a sustained nine-month deliberation on, uh, well, every weekend for nine months, not full-time. And it would would decide uh, how other questions would be decided in the future. It was about the electoral system. It was a rare occasion to find out, uh, I thought, uh, if deliberative democracy could work if citizens had to make actual decisions. Now, I, I should be clear about this. They were not, they were authorized to make the decision about what would go to a referendum, but it wasn't um, simply a matter of uh, their making, a, uh, giving advice to the government whatever they decided would automatically be voted on by the, uh, all the voters in British Columbia. And that had not happened before in any electoral reform. Okay, before I look at the actual deliberation, the deliberation in action uh, of this assembly, I should say something about deliberative democracy and something about how the assembly was created. Uh, first, deliberative democracy. As Michael mentioned, I've written a lot about it, so I could go on at great length. Uh, you'll, most of you will be glad that I won't. Uh, one book, uh, most recent book that I wrote with Amy Gutman is called Why Deliberative Democracy? And some people said it should have been called Why, Not, Why Another Book on Deliberative Democracy? But um, there are some people in this room who have also written very important work on deliberative democracy, and so I'm sure we can have a discussion about that if you would like. But let me just say, it is, one in political theory, one of the two or three most discussed topics in recent years. And that means uh, that however I describe deliberative democracy, there will be someone probably in the front row or maybe in the back row, who will disagree with the description. Let me just keep it simple. The the basic idea of deliberative democracy is captured by what I call a reason-giving requirement. Citizens and their representatives are expected to justify to one another the laws that they would impose on one another by giving reasons for their political claims and responding to reasons that other people give. Now, you can immediately see, just in that statement, what's a reason? What counts as a reason? And that's precisely where some of the dispute in the theory is. Um, There's also disagreement about how extensive the reason-giving forum should be. Should it be just in a representative assembly, or should it also be all the way down, as it were, in uh, all sorts of settings? Uh, Are procedural norms enough, or do you have to have substantive principles in the theory? Consensus, is that desirable as the goal or not? Uh, Deliberative Democrats are all over the place on those questions, and I'll come back at least to the consensus one later. But the one thing that they agree on, or one of the things they agree on, is in rejecting conceptions of democracy that base 
politics only on power or interest or aggregation of preferences or sort of competitive uh, economic theories of democracy in the tradition of, say, Joseph Schumpeter, um, the early Bob Dole, Anthony Downs. That's often set up as uh, a contrast. The reasons that deliberative democracy asks citizens uh, to give appeal to principles that individuals who are trying to find fair terms of cooperation could not reasonably reject. There are reasons that uh, should be accepted by people who are free and equal uh, individuals trying to find fair terms of cooperation. So there's a motivational assumption. The reasons should be given in a public forum, and the participants should come to the forum not with fixed preferences, which you do in difference curves and so forth, but open to having their minds changed in response to reasons that other people give. Now, this is obviously a normative conception, an ideal conception, if you like, but it's one that's meant to be realizable under certain conditions to some degree. No actual political discussion will ever be purely or entirely satisfactorily uh, deliberative, and all attempts at deliberation are going to fall short. Now, the Citizens' Assembly is a real decision-making body, not a laboratory experiment or a social scientist's concoction. And by looking at its deliberations, we should be able to learn something about uh, to what extent this ideal can be uh, actually realized in practice and, and uh, whether uh, and how one might go about evaluating other experiments or other cases of this sort. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, the British Columbia Citizens' Assembly. Some of you may know about it. I, I didn't know much about it until I went there and studied it and watched it and interviewed people. It didn't get much and still hasn't gotten a lot of attention in this country um, uh, in the press. And we're often the last place in the world to try innovative experiments in democracy, at least favorable ones. We've, we've, we have tried to see if you can have a democracy and a dictatorship at the same time. We tried that. Like most uh, efforts at electoral reform, uh, and this is pretty true generally, the electoral reform sort of begins with some kind of political dissatisfaction. The Citizens' Assembly was similarly born of political dissatisfaction, not really philosophical aspiration. It was the offspring of political defeat, or apolitical defeat. In 1996, in a provincial election, the Liberal Party, the British Columbia Liberal Party, uh, got 42% of the popular vote. Their main rival, the NDP, the New Democratic Party, got 39%, but the NDP got uh, a majority of the seats, huge majority of the seats in the legislature. So there was, was not quite as bad as winning the popular vote, but not winning the presidency. But it was, you know, really out of balance. The liberal leader defeated 
pledged that if his party, if the liberals had a chance to form the next government at the next election, he would initiate electoral reform. He would, and he was quite specific about this, propose a creation of a body of citizens with the power to formulate recommendations that would go to a binding referendum. Some of his colleagues in the Liberal Party, which, you know, sort of said, why did you do that? I said, don't worry, you know, he won't make good on that. If we win, they'll forget about it. Well, the Liberals did win the next election with a vengeance. In 2001, although the party just got 57% of the vote, they won all but two of the seats in the legislature. Sort of overwhelming. Well, you would think um, they might have forgotten this pledge, maybe in, in, in any place else but Canada or, you know, sort of, they look like us, they walk like us, but they, they really are quite different. They kept their promises. Uh, they, he, Campbell is his name, kept the pledge, and in April 2003, the legislature, his liberal party, sort of some of them reluctantly, um, created the British Columbia Citizens Assembly for electoral reform. And uh, the multi-stage process for selecting the members, which had been set out in some detail, began with a random sample of some 200 names from each of the 79 districts, writings, they call them. Um, you should know that because I'll be, they'll be showing you some clips of the discussion a little bit later. And they talk in this English language, but they use these terms that sound strange. Um, the sample that they was stratified by gender and age and then and meetings in each district across the province, they selected, actually drew out of a hat, uh, one man and one woman. Sounds like a movie, doesn't it? A man, uh, and could, because the requirement was that, that it, there had to be uh, equal number of men and women. And the districts also, made, it was done by districts, made sure that there was geographical distribution. And then they realized when they got finished, there, was, there were no, we would say, Native Americans. Do they say, they don't say Native Can Canadians. First Nations people were not represented. So they added two, man and a woman, and appointed a chair, former university president. That might have, you might think that would be a mistake. And, but again, in Canada, it turns out that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> Once selected, uh, the members met every weekend for nearly nine months. They, their expenses were paid. That some of them had to travel all the way down from you know, Dawson Creek to Vancouver. They got $150 a day. And they began the first few months with learning phase, and they had experts, political scientists, not political theorists, um, come in and lecture to them about different electoral, electoral systems. And they traveled around the province and listened to citizens who really showed up in large numbers and talked about what they wanted. And then they began a deliberation phase. They actually called it deliberation, a deliberation phase, where the first thing was to develop a set of the criteria by which they would judge 
the various election the, the alternatives. Um, they had three, I think, fair, um, fair electoral results, by which they meant basically proportionality between vote, votes and seats. You know, so there, that we wouldn't repeat this problem that had, you know, where you get large certain percentage of votes but no seats, or not a similar percentage of seats in the legislature. They also, though, wanted effective local representation. They wanted to have, know that they had a, uh, a go-to guy, as some of them said, that they could um, count as their. Uh, MLA, that's another term you'll hear. We would say member of Congress or representative. It's a member of the Legislative Assembly, MLA. And finally, greater voter choice, which meant different things to different people, but uh, you'll see that they, the single transferable vote system seemed to some of them to give more choice because you could rank indefinite number of people. Um, I, I'll just show you just um, a little bit later, I'll show you some of the uh, discussion they had, but I want to just see if I can um, get this up. Yeah, it seemed to work. Just to get a flavor of what it looked like in the first day. See, they're sitting, as you can see, in a circle. And well, this actually wasn't the first day. They'd gotten to know one another. Pretty soon, you should hear. We're not hearing anything. Um, now, you should make sure that oh, you are you sitting in the same place. This is the chair. And uh, that the card in front of you has your name. Jim, is that your name? Perfectly good. Now you know who you are there. It's a philosophical point about personal identity. <laughs> because we are going to have another ballot momentarily. So um, this guy, you know, he's not a great, you know, he's not Stephen Colbert or John Stewart, but he has had just the right kind of balance of wit to keep when things got kind of uh, tense, as it did. Uh, and, but really, won the respect of everybody because he was very fair and balanced and gave everybody a chance to talk. So it was, it was important. It is important who the chair is and how. Uh, and so I think they were lucky on that. Next to him is Ken Carty, who's a political scientist at uh, British Columbia, who was the organized uh, the learning sessions. Um, all right. Now, we'll come back to this in a, in a minute. Um, we can put the lights back on because then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk for a few minutes and then we'll actually see, um, see some of the arguments. The, the members decided themselves to focus on two models that uh, could possibly replace the uh, current system. The current system was pretty much like ours, first past the post. Uh, uh, Single-member districts where a major if you win a majority in the district, you're elected. The two alternatives that they considered to, to that were mixed-member proportional 
system, which is, um, and, well, let me, and the other is single transferable vote. So you'll hear them refer to it, MMP and STV. The, the version of MMP, the mixed member proportional, uh, combines, it, it's similar to the system in Germany, actually, and now in New Zealand. It combines districts with proportional representation. It seems like a good compromise. Um, in the version that they had, uh, were considering, each citizen, each voter has two votes. Um, I in Chicago, although this is legal. Uh, you, one is for the representative in your district, and, and the other is for the party list. And the seats in the legislature are then filled, uh, in this case, 60% of the legislator seats are filled from the, um, the votes for the district candidates. And the other 40% are filled uh, in order to, to top up the proportion. So this gets a little complicated. So that the finished legislature looks like pretty much, if, if you do this, looks like the proportion of seats in the legislature match the proportion of seats each party won. But you also have your own district representative. And very, it's a clever system. It does have some anomalies, you know, could, you can, as a candidate, you can run in either or both, as a, on the party list or in the district. And you could get defeated in the district but win on the list and be representing people who voted against you. Um, so, uh, so, sort of like what we have, I guess, now that I think about it. Um, single transferable vote is a system that I knew a lot about because John Stuart Mill favored it. It was used in my hometown, Hamilton, Ohio, and uh, is used in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's like it's followed me around because um, Ireland uses a variation of it, Tasmania, I'm told, but basically nowhere else. The assembly's version of the single transferable vote, you may use it in fa faculty um, senates use it sometimes. I don't know if you use it here. It's basically you just vote, uh, you get one vote or one ballot, and you rank all the candidates. And the um, just one, two, three, you put numbers on the ballot, and the... Um, Candidates who receive the, the quota, the required number of first place votes, the quota is set in different ways. There's a sort of interesting mathematical problems about bias, but um, basically uh, the, it, it is almost always the case that nobody, only a few people will get the quota at the beginning, and then there's some surplus votes most somebody gets more first place votes than he or she uh, needs, and the surplus then is taken, used to be physically taken and distributed uh, according to who's on the second place of the ballot to the other candidates. Um, now it's done by computer, and uh, there are ways of, of weighting uh, the, the distribution so that no votes are wasted. And uh, 
this uh, was the system that the assembly ended up favoring in a secret ballot in October. um, The members voted 123 to 31 in favor of STV, the single transferable vote, over the MPP or MMP. And so first they chose which of the two alternatives they preferred. And then they said, do we prefer the alternative that we've chosen to the present system? You can see they could have reversed it, but I think this is a more intelligent procedure, actually. Um, and th- they did, at that point, overwhelmingly prefer STV to um, first past the post. And in May of 2005, the electorate was asked, should British Columbia change to the BC STV electoral system as recommended by the Citizens' Assembly, yes or no? Well, there's not much suspense in this talk. (laughs) So I'll leave uh, to the end and tell you what the answer is so you can sit on your chair. If you leave before this is over, you will never know. Um, our concern is not who wins, right? It's not how you play the game. Or it's how you, no. Vince Lombardi is not our ethicist. Winning isn't everything. It's the only thing, I think he said. Um, and that's wrong, unless you're talking about the Red Sox. Which, uh, now, how, so we don't care how it came out, or we shouldn't. Uh, but we do care about how well they did in the deliberations. And so how do we judge? Well, there are many possible standards of evaluation, but in the the paper that was distributed, which you, uh, fortunately, you didn't have to read, uh, I focus on two fundamental values that any theory of democracy or conception of democracy should Uh, appreciate liberty and equality. And one reason for focusing on those and using those as the basis for evaluation is that non-deliberative Democrats should be interested in seeing whether deliberation can satisfy those standards. And also another reason, um, and I developed this more in the paper, is that those are the values, the same values that support the justification for granting citizens the right to decide what kind of electoral system they should have in the first place. The right to choose how to choose is, you would think, would be a fundamental right in a democracy, but surprisingly, until the British Columbia Citizens' Assembly came along, uh, almost all of the decisions and choices of electoral systems were made by elites. Start with liberty. To what extent did members make a free choice? To what extent, that is, was their decision autonomous in the sense that they had control over the agenda, were not subject to undue pressure, and were able to reason autonomously? Uh, Now, in the the paper, I go into all of those, but here let me just focus on the last aspect, uh, the extent to which members were making independent decisions autonomous in the sense that they weren't just repeating what the experts had told them 
following party cues, uh, conforming to what they thought the majority wanted, or putting forward sort of uh, pretty simple uh, self or group interested arguments. So let's, let's look at this a little bit. There is some um, indirect evidence that the members thought that they were well informed. Uh, there were surveys taken all the way through, you know, how, did you th how much do you think you've learned? Uh, how much do you think you know about electoral systems? Their self-described uh, scores were the beginning 4.3 after a week up to 9.11 on a 10-point scale by the end of the learning phase. Now, you know, some of us were skeptics. We asked some of the members what would they have objected if we had given, if they'd given a quiz on what they knew. And so, yeah, I, this is, you know, I wouldn't have come. I had $150 to take a quiz? No. So we don't know, but uh, I think for that reason, some of the best evidence is actually watching the tapes of the discussions. I won't show you all nine months' worth. It is, my impression is, uh, and other observers, the partisan affiliations were rarely mentioned. There weren't any partisan cues to rely on very much. They all never used arguments from authority, or almost never. Uh, mostly, they appealed to the three criteria that they had also de that they developed as a as a group um, themselves. My sense was uh, that they, you know, one of the good things about this, maybe we should know in our own teaching, it would be a good technique. They had to develop the details of each of these alternative systems, not the first past the post, but the M. -M mixed member proportional and STV. There are many variations that you could have for those systems, and they got into the details up enough that they began to understand how they worked. Um, and I think they probably had a better grasp of each citizen than students in political science classes who usually just consider the, the systems you know, already fixed, and you look at the details and how they work. Here they were actually designing variations of the system. It's certainly true of my students who did, I had got them to learn the details of single transferable vote by using the system to vote on which flavors of Ben and Jerry's ice cream they wanted to have in the last meeting of the spring of the course. That got their attention. Um, although I have to say the ice cream that they didn't actually expect me to make good on that in the last session. We bring in the ice cream, and I didn't know that there were such unusual flavors, but uh, we had ice cream. Now, uh, unfortunately, Michael didn't offer me the chance to do that here, but perhaps the reception will have something along those lines. Okay. Um, I... I uh, won't be able to show you uh, not only all the nine months, but even some of the best ex exchanges. But instead of quoting, as I do in the paper, um, the arguments and framing them a little bit, uh, let me actually show you, take some time here, and show you some of the uh, arguments, the good and bad ones uh, that they made. I'll 
I won't, I'll have to cut some of them off because, like, after a while, like academics, they had a tendency to want to extend uh, their words beyond the, the content of what they had to say. Uh, but um, I think you'll get an idea of what kinds of arguments and what kinds of people were making them uh, by looking, taking a few minutes here to look at, um, at the... Um, the tapes of the, these are the plenary sessions where you saw they were all in the room. Uh, in addition, every, they went to the, they drank together, they had bar, you know, went to the bar afterwards, they had small group discussions, they ate together. It's an intensive every weekend, three days. Uh, so there was discussion outside of this going on all the time. And they had a, a web, a, a sort of a, a blog for just for the members and that was very active so there was a lot of communication going on um, all right now first here's an exchange between Bill Bill Jackson I mentioned Dawson Creek it's up gold Yukon gold Klondike territory up in the northwest northeast he goes on at some length here and I, I will have to cut him off defending first past the post, despite the fact that it lost dramatically. There were two or three really strong and articulate defenders of the status quo system. And then Jill Riley uh, from Vancouver picks up on a couple of his phrases. Listen for the phrase, behind closed doors. And she uses that rhetorically, I think, well, see what you think. Let me uh, see if we can. Um, this is chapter. I'm usually more comfortable speaking while standing because I find it gives me a head start when I have to run. <laughs> I am, of course, going to speak in favor of the current system. The uh, uh, Dr. Cardi said yesterday and again today that uh, in our our current system. We elect the legislature from which the government is drawn, and that's, of course, true in theory. In reality, we elect the government because we elect the majority, and it gives the, uh, the government the strength to make hard decisions and to form long-term policies, whether we'd like them or not. Um, if we adopt a system such as STV, we will, of course, unless something unusual happens in province generate coalition governments. Then the decisions as to who forms the government will not be made by the, the voters in the very crude way I think it was described this morning, but will be made by politicians behind closed doors, and we will lose transparency. We will also remove any incentive, and again I will quote Dr. Cardi, uh, for parties to be non-ideological, pragmatic vote-gathering machines seeking to attract median voters. The political bargaining uh, won't occur within the party, but will occur between parties. Again, as I suggest, behind closed doors. And as Margaret said, this in turn will ultimately mean that the tail may wag the dog. I'm not saying that I will... Thanks. Um, I... 
I support a vote for change, but it's not just for change's sake. I think we've been through a process where we have weighed the values that are important to people in BC, and um, I believe that STV would be more fair on the balance of those values. And I'd like to speak to Bill's point about um, his concern about coalition or minority governments resulting in decisions that are made behind closed doors. Um, right now, I'm going to continue with that door metaphor. In Right now, I see decisions made behind closed doors under first-past-the-post. They're made behind the premier's door. It's one door. And I'd like to see a system, and I don't know that it would result in um, more decisions being made behind closed doors, but if it has to be that way, then lots of doors, lots of different houses. <laughs> Thanks. When I um, was first uh, selected for the um, Citizens' Assembly, one of the things they asked us on a brief bio is... Okay. Um, I'm, I'm going to go... Uh, we, can, we can keep it off uh, for, uh, for a while. I'm going to go through several of those. So there you have um, Bill. I didn't let him finish. Uh, because he wasn't as concise as Jill, but a, a nice interplay using the same closed doors for metaphor for two different but quite substantive points. There's, both of them seem to me had captured something about the system's that, uh, strengths and weaknesses that uh, ring true. Um, now, l listen to this uh, argument against... Here, here's an exchange uh, for and against STV, not the present system, but, um, and we'll see if I can get uh, Frankie Kirby, who is in favor of STV. She started talking there um, before I wanted her to. Started when I um, was first uh, selected for the um, Citizens' Assembly, one of the things they asked us on a brief bio is, what is one of the things that concerns you? And one of the things that concerns me is voter apathy. And um, I've always, I've got a sticker on my fridge that says, every vote counts. And it talks about times in history when one vote has, has made a difference. And um, <clears throat> I, I have a, a teenage daughter and... Uh, who fortunately is, is quite interested in, in the political process, but so many young people, as we know, aren't. Uh, vote, vote, there's a lot of voter apathy. There's declining voting rates. And uh, I don't really think that the first price of the post system is going to stem that tide. Um, I'm not saying that uh, we'll get an automatic larger voter turnout with STV, but I think with a system that doesn't disenfranchise people, that's more inclusive, I think there's a possibility to revitalize interest in our political process and uh, when with this greater vo voter choice and people feel their voices are being heard, I think that that will inevitably lead to a better voter turnout. Thank you. Now, um, against. Imagine a system here with MMP um, where you could vote your local rep. Then you could also vote for a party. And if you live in a northern area where, say, cattle ranching is the big issue there and there's some kind of party that call it the cattle rancher party, um, you can vote them in. Now, when they go to the legislative, your issues are going to be heard by this party not just by a person, but by a party carrying all your interests. And they will work with other parties on their issues as well, other than just one person or five local reps that you could go talk to. Um, I was talking to somebody during coffee break this afternoon, 
and um, this person said to me that um, an MLA wouldn't be under the party discipline because the party would have to work with this MLA, otherwise the MLA could go independent. Uh, the problem I have with that is if the MLA can hold the party hostage by saying I'm going to go independent, you have them working against each other, so it's still a discipline issue, whether it's through the party or the independent. Thank you. Now, not all of the arguments uh, were cogent. Um, I, I want to show you a couple. Um, just Though I had trouble finding, actually, some bad arguments. Um, but these, these count, um, or at least I think so. See what you think. Here's a very short one uh, from... Um, Richard Hall from Courtney, uh, Reverend Hall, actually. On the fence on, the, on these two, but Heidi's sitting next to me, and she told me just about STP. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the first past, uh, past the post the, is served. Um, he didn't quite get the beginning of that. He said he didn't know. You, basically, you got all... It just didn't hear it, but that was his whole comment. He said, I don't really know what to vote for, but I'm sitting next to Cheryl, and she told me to vote for STV, so that's what I'm going to do. So that's not an argument. That, it's not an argument. Um, Sam, whom we'll hear now, goes on at greater length than you sort of wish uh, maybe he had. <laughs> Reverend Hall looks pretty good after this one. See what you think. <laughs> Which isn't the last thing you'll have to fit. This is my favorite tie. I bought it to be the best man at Charmin's wedding, so I thought I'd wear it today. Oh, I was bringing you good luck. No, the, the first pass, pass the post is served, well, democracy for, oh God, millions of years. I'm sure the first Australopithecine came come down out of the trees, and they wanted to decide whether or not they'd go to the valley or stay in the mountain. They had a vote. Um, it's, it's, we all know it's stable, and we all know it's familiar, and it's, it's like that warm embrace at the end of the day. And, you know, just because your grandmother's a little bit senile or a little bit slow, do you, do you put her on an iceberg and send her out of the way? It's, you know, how, we've been to world wars, and, you know, that's the one constant, familiar, believable, trusting thing is the way we elect uh, our folk. Now, that's not to say that, you know, it, it, it couldn't evolve, but, you know, we're not dealing with the evolution of FPTP here. We're just going to either keep it or throw it out on its butt. Um, what I'm worried about is that a lot of people are going to look at STV as a panacea to cure all the ills because of the potential goodness that it can do. Uh, this could very well do all those things and more. We could... Uh, Go STV and, you know, a new golden age of democracy uh, could start here in B.C. Maybe, maybe not. To quote my good friend Mo yesterday who used the seductress STV. Yeah, she's pretty. She dresses well. But can she cook? <laughs> and... You know, does it that we 
it's not something that we need to, you know, that we got to, you know, in 30 seconds think about and go, oh, well, you know, it's new, let's try it, you know. Think hard about it because this is a decision that's going to last at least one election. <laughs> and chances are when the smoke all clears and the, the, the province decides that, you know, STV wasn't right for us, you know, who's going to be standing there but the grand old lady, FTP, with her arms wide open, welcoming <coughs> us back, and, and I don't think she'll be too upset with us. Well, Sam, that's enough. Uh, the, um, generally, that's not typical. Um, the spirit was deliberative um, in ways that should warm the hearts and minds of deliberative Democrats, or at, or at least the minds. Some people say deliberative Democrats don't have hearts. Members did not come across as partisans or zealous advocates, and they typically said that they saw virtues uh, of the other systems. They appreciated the arguments of their opponents, and many of them changed their minds. Uh, Ray uh, Spaxman here. Um, let's see if I can get my, um, my menu back. Um, West Vancouver it became a kind of, he was the, the communitarian deliberative Democrat. Um, uh, he didn't call himself that. We theorists who were watching it had little labels for everybody Thank you, Mr. that Chairman. they didn't know um, I've been absolutely amazed over the last uh, several weeks uh, when I've had an opportunity to read the various discussions going on on the website. They've been phenomenally articulate, they've been beautifully explained. I've wavered mightily from one side to another and began to conclude that both of the systems would achieve the three primary purposes that we've set out in this uh, group over a period of time. And therefore, I had to look for what the differences might be that would convert me to one or the other. And so things like uh, the simplicity of it uh, actually leads me to one. The idea that uh, the people who are elected are there to serve me and the electoral system is, should be something to encourage them to understand that relationship I sort of come down on the side of STV now that's not a very strong position and I could waver but I've heard so many people tell me today that they could go with either one or the other one that I've also begun to notice that the STV one because I favour it too also seems to be favoured by a lot of people. So I'm suggesting to those people who waver, they might just uh, think a little bit more about what it looks like when the vote comes in. And I suspect that the vote for STV is going to be significant in suggesting a lot of strength from what I've read and understood, including observing over several weeks now the anxieties expressed by the what we call the northerners who seem to have come down also on the side of STV. So... That was to be where my vote will go. Thank you. Now, there's a, in his remarks a, a fairly subtle, but I think picked up by the members, plea for consensus. Um, that, you know, he wasn't sure, but he's come down, it would be good if maybe we all got together on this. Um, I, I have another clip, but I'm, not, I'm running a little bit behind on time, where another member, Bob Harris, the next day, 
makes an explicit all-out plea, look, you know, STB's going to win, and let's make a stand for unity and show uh, that we're all in favor of this and uh, that that will strengthen the credibility of the Assembly's recommendation if it's unanimous. And so then Spaxman, who kind of started that idea, now... When he hears it made explicit. I'm so uh, uh, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to be among a people who are so kind diverse. Of reverses and himself. I know we live in a society which is getting increasingly diverse. I'm also aware that in the world, the world is becoming increasingly diverse. And in order to be successful, we all have. Uh, and uh, we're, I think we're going to have it on the screen. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, first of all, uh, Mr. Chairman. I'm so uh, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to be among a people who are so diverse. And the vote. Uh, I'm not going to say much more. I no. To get the real benefit of the riot and the thing to learn from New Zealand. Mr. Chairman, I'm so uh, okay, I'm excited we'll to, to be here. To I'm excited to be among a people who are so diverse. And I know we live in a society which is getting increasingly diverse. I'm also aware that in the world, the world is becoming increasingly diverse, and in order to be successful, we all have to be neighborly. So the theme of neighborliness, which is about listening and reaching out and including and involving and engaging, understanding and accommodating, is... Mr. Chairman, I'm so... Uh, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to be among a people who are so diverse, and I know we live in a society which is getting increasingly diverse. I'm also aware that in the world, the world is becoming increasingly diverse, and in order to be successful, we all have to be neighborly. So the theme of neighborliness, which is about listening and reaching out and including and involving and engaging, understanding and accommodating, is one of the reasons why I'm moving towards STP. I strongly support the idea of developing systems that get rid of old systems and accommodate the ability for us to become neighborly in everything that we do. So I support STV. Yesterday I spoke a bit about the importance of getting a majority. I have confidence there will be a majority for this vote, but I don't seek a unanimity. I think one of the essences of the diversity is there will be people who cannot agree with it. Uh, they may be in a minority. I'd like to recognize them. I would like always to continue to reach out to accommodate them. Thank you very much. I just want okay. Um you, you got that point at the end. I think also we can turn on the lights. And that last comment and would have been even more if I could have played um, Bob Harath illustrates pretty strikingly uh, an important issue in deliberative theory. To what extent should the goal of deliberation be consensus? I mean, no doubt it's better if you can reach a genuine consensus, uh, but not at the price of con forcing conformity or for the purpose of showing unity. If there's dissent, it should be made visible, and especially in a body of this sort, which is representative uh, and uh, is something that citizens should know about. Now, I, I, was, I said I was going to look, uh, judge the uh, assembly by whether it satisfied standards of equality. I do that in the, um, in the paper. It's, it's a mixed picture. Um, 
gender equality in the discussions was not equal. Uh, As you might expect, the men talked more often at greater length. Uh, my sample here is not repre- it's not typical because I was trying to pick the best arguments and I ended up with maybe more women than men. But that was not the airtime. Uh, it is the people who observed the small group discussions said that uh, the participation was much more equal in, in the small groups. But... Um, let, let me turn and, and sort of skip over a lot and conclude I, uh, a, a different, about a different equal, inequality that has been somewhat controversial, um, not within the assembly, but the inequality, the disparity that develops between the assembly after it's finished its job and the citizen body, the electorate, uh, that's going to vote on the um, uh, recommendation. Now, that relationship is inherently unequal. The members of the assembly engaged on relatively equal terms, not perfectly, but they engaged as equals, more or less, in a process of deliberation that the electorate can never hope to match the members enjoyed an opportunity that their fellow citizens could not, did not, could not share. They, the members were changed by the experience that they went through in ways that set them apart from the electorate. They reached conclusions for reasons that most ordinary voters probably could not fully appreciate. The members began as ordinary citizens and ended as nascent experts. The process was sort of designed to reduce the gap between citizens and experts. But the process itself reproduced the problem that it was intended to overcome. So the greater the success of the deliberative process in the assembly, the better, more competent, more informed, more deliberative the members became, the greater the gap between what they were and what the electorate whom they were representing would be and the electorates who's going to be voting on what they recommend. Now, I, um, I don't think that that's... Um, well, some deliberative Democrats think this is a fatal or problem or a, diff- a challenge that we should try to overcome by trying to replicate the deliberative process in the electorate realizing you can't do it completely, but, you know, let's go through some of the same arguments uh, in public opinion, try to get the citizens to talk about STV or at least fair representation, MMP, and so forth, and use this as a learning occasion. Um, I myself think that's a mistake. Uh, I also think that the, the referendum similar one in Ontario last month went down to defeat because they tried to have a campaign about the referendum or about the recommendation uh, that somehow reproduced what the assembly did. I think a better approach is an approach that's consistent with equal respect is if the members of the assembly take their uh, obligation seriously 
to explain the process, to show the process to the citizens, and if voters are prepared to trust the members, this moral gap of inequality disappears, if, even if a competence gap remains. A voter can say, a voter can say to an assembly member, not only I trust you because you engaged in a process that seems fair and reasonable, you might be able to say that of any representative, ideally. I don't think I can say that about some of my representatives. But, but in this case, you can go further. You can say, I trust you because you are a person not so different from me. Uh, and you decided, as I am, can imagine, that I might have done if I had had nine months of these weekends. You look like me, you talk like me, and yet you had this experience and it seems uh, that you've come to these conclusions. So I trust you. Uh, unlike members of expert commissions or even some legislators and other elites, these assembly members not only were ordinary citizens before they went to Vancouver for nine months, but they resumed their role after. Their service exemplified a pure form of rotation in office. And, and in that sense, voters and members remained uh, equals. So that, I think, has uh, some implications, both practical for how we defend these, uh, or how, how assemblies should engage in campaigns to get their recommendations accepted, but it also harkens back, and it's not only for the benefit of our philosophers who do ancient philosophy, to an, an Aristotelian idea that I think may, may, maybe uh, we have forgotten the value of, and here is a, a vivid and practical reminder of it. So I'll conclude, um, tell you the end. It's not the end, actually. In the referendum, the Assembly's recommendation won 57% of the vote in the province as a whole. And substantial majorities in each of all but two of the 59 electoral districts. But that was not enough to meet the tough, I think excessively tough test that the legislature had set, which was 60%, not 50, a supermajority. Still, the premier decided uh, after thinking about it, and uh, that the 57% was pretty impressive. He called it a mandate. The educational campaign had not been very successful. They hadn't put any money, enough money into it. And so he decided we're going to have a second referendum, sort of mulligan, I guess. I mean, it, didn't work. it should have worked. We'll do it again. Uh, and that will take place next year. So stay tuned. Whatever the outcome of the referendum, the Assembly's work and the close first vote have encouraged reformers throughout Canada. I mentioned three provinces there. The Assembly's influence is extending beyond that. Uh, the Netherlands, California, maybe, um, maybe England. The deliberative process in which the uh, VC citizens engaged stands, I, I believe, as, as an exemplar that can guide future efforts uh, to give citizens greater control over their electoral systems. 
as a result of the assembly's uh, achievement, I think no democracy now can responsibly undertake electoral reform without seriously considering an assembly of this sort uh, as part of the process. Uh, that has not been true in the past. And no democracy can rule out the possibility of direct citizen participation in the making uh, of laws generally. So I would, uh, what, the way I should conclude this uh, I, on the tape here, they, at the end, when they're all finished, they all stand up and sing, Hail Canada, or whatever the national anthem is. <laughs> but um, they're, they're, they're not, uh, <laughs> they're no better singers than, than, some, than, than I am. So uh, that would not be um, a fitting conclusion. So let's stay tuned, see what happens with the um, outcome of the next referendum. And in the meantime, uh, don't uh, vote in any referendums until you see how this one turns out. Thank you. Uh, yeah, well, it's a, it, it is a pointed question, which I'll try to evade the point of uh, a little bit. Uh, the, I think it, um, it's, a, a, it's a good case for illustrating um, that people can actually have their um, preferences formed and changed because they didn't, for the most part, come with any strong views about um, STV or MMP. They hadn't heard of it before. It wasn't entirely clear uh, which parties that it would affect uh, uh, more than others. And so, unlike, say, stem cell re research or, or abortion or hot-button issues, where peop which would be a harder test, um, the, this process allowed people to actually try out new ideas, change in the process of the deliberation. So it was, you know, well suited to illustrate, but not well suited to prove, uh, like a hard case would be, that this would work across the board. Um, now, I, I think that. Um, the, you know, I, I th my own belief is looking at some of the other evidence and other cases that it is possible uh, over a period of longer periods of time 
to have people change their minds in settings like this, even on difficult issues. Um, maybe not abortion, but on some questions. And uh, this is an example of how it might be done. You have to have a good leader. You have to have learning sessions. You have to spend a lot of time together. And so um, in a way, instead of starting with hard cases, we start with an easy case. On the aggregation, I don't think um, even if you got a bunch of people together for nine months, sort of nine months is a, probably doesn't mix well, well with abortion, but the idea of a long period of time on a hot issue is not... Um, is not going to be a very good way to um, uh, test whether you can aggregate preference. In, in other words, if you want to aggregate pre preferences and get them better informed, then you don't really need to have this kind of long process. It's actually inefficient. And it's sort of the process itself is not... Um, an aggregative process would be very hard. Now, okay, having said all that, you've you raised there are a whole bunch of interesting questions buried in this. You might say, then, why did they vote by majority vote in the, in the assembly itself, which is what they did. They were aggregating preferences. Why was it a secret ballot? Um... There are some there are answers to that question, but uh, what I'm conceding is that even in this deliberative process, there were elements of aggregative democracy, and you could say, well, you can't do without them. So, the short answer is, no, this wasn't simply a way of aggregating preferences disguised as deliberation, but yes, there were elements of aggregative democracy inside this, slightly hidden, latent, uh, in the deliberative process. But was the work then just to talk to the process, the work of the deliberation, or is the work to actually find some way of taking beyond individual self-interest, or is it really getting more informed practices to actually the deliberation beyond the activity? Well, they, they were able to think. Um, about the public interest because uh, there was a kind of veil of ignorance. I mean, they, they didn't see uh, that some parties might be benefited by this rather than other parties. Or they saw it, but they, didn't, they weren't partisans. So they were, you know, it, it, they really did think the way deliberative Democrats do rather than just more than, say, James Fishkin's um, so-called deliberative juries where people are just getting their preferences better informed and not trying to reach a decision collectively. Yeah. Sir. Yeah, well, um, they're Canadians. I mean, 
No, they were not required to do it. In, in my uh, ideal republic, you would be required to show up for these things, like jury duty. And uh, the, so there is a bias of uh, not self-selection, but um, you know, first they drew this random sample of 200 people, then they brought them to meetings, and we sat in a group about this size and had a discussion about the purpose of it. Some people walked out, as they did a few minutes ago, and then we could say, how many of you are seriously interested? And then we drew names from the hat, and maybe 10 people out of the, who were chosen said, on reflection, I can't do it. Everybody else came, and only one person dropped out and for health reasons in nine months. So they really stuck with it. So it was, you know, it's not strictly like a jury system. It's not compulsory. It wasn't exactly random for lots of different reasons. Um, but it, it's pretty uh, amazing commitment and pretty representative under the circumstances. Yes. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I mean, the, there was a lot of suspicion uh, outside of the assembly that the whole thing had been set up. This, and particularly the press coverage in Ontario this past year went where this, a lot of people thought, oh, it's just, you know, the experts set it, set it up. Um, the... The, the university president didn't do <laughs> didn't do that. Um, he the, the the legislature appointed a, a, a committee to try to decide how it would be organized. It was actually and one one person, a former premier or leader of the Liberal Party, wrote a report which was then debated by the legislature about how the experts would be chosen and not who they were, but the process. And fortunately, they ended up with some really good people uh, who were very balanced. The tapes of their presentation were available publicly, so you, you can look at them yourself, or you know, critics could, and see you know were they trying to. Now there is there the there. So I my I was comfortable looking at all those tapes that this was remarkably fair and balanced. It wasn't like my department of political science at Harvard, which is fighting all the time. Um, it was, um, th but there is a bias, both in the selection process, pick your point and yours together, and in the sort of agenda that the experts were talking about. The bias is against the status quo. Because you you know why would you you wouldn't want to spend nine months doing this if you didn't if you weren't interested in change, probably. Um, well, you might you might think I've got to stop this from happening, um, but that's not enough to get really engaged in looking at alternatives in detail, which this required. And there was a bias against parties. Uh, STV is not uh, a great system for maintaining a two-party system. And um, so people entering into it would 
uh, not particularly like parties. And to some extent, the academics presenting these things were not biased, but the academic literature and elections reform basically is not pro-party for the most part. So, and it not all that favorable toward first past the post. So in the back. Why shouldn't um, you make the referendum process as close as you can get it to the deliberative process? And the question struck me because when you show the example of the member of the assembly who says, I'm voting the way she voted on my right <laughs> yeah. that's that can be interpreted anyway as trust. Yes. And when you talk about the referendum, what you said was you preferred the system in which there was trust. And that seems to work better in D.C. than uh, in Ontario, where they tried to have a more deliberative process in the society that you don't want. So your argument seems to go in one direction inside and in another direction outside. And I, I wish you'd understand that. Yeah, well, uh, first to on, on the allegation of inconsistency, which I'm usually happy to accept, but it's not here. Uh, the, I, I think within the assembly, you should not, as a member, be following other people's opinion. You should be ma help making your own judgment about what the good of this province is, listening to other people, but not following authority or opinion. Or the ideal citizen, um, generally. Now, so uh, so that's why rever the, the, the the reverend who said I'll vote the way she does um, is not a good citizen. Once it comes to the electorate, ideally, a, a lot of Democrats, not only deliberative Democrats, but you know, citizenship theorists, for all, have, have tried to say, or wanted to say, that we should have the same ideal for citizens. We'll fall short, of course. You know, this, these are ideals, but let's try. That's what we should try to do. Um, I'm saying, and I don't think it's inconsistent, but it, it's certainly contestable, <laughs> that no, uh, in a mass democracy, we should not try to reproduce this. It's, it's not going to be feasible. It will actually distort and be counterproductive because people will, um, for one thing, prefer the status quo. That's what happened in Ontario. They just said, oh, I can't understand this, this, this crazy system. I'll just keep, we'll just keep what we've got. Uh, it's biased against change. People see complexity. They don't want to change. Uh, it's subject to manipulation. Um, there, you know, a lot of the criticisms of mass public opinion and mass decision-making, which sometimes are brought against democracy, I am willing to appropriate and use um, for a division of labor. I mean, the great thing about the Citizens' Assembly is that it's a democratic device that can be used for what looked in previously like an elitist position. So I don't think it's inconsistent, but it is a it's, there's a certain irony or twist to it that makes true Democrats a little nervous. As I can see some. Yes? Are you saying that elections in Ontario or the Liberal Party of Ontario should have taken a more proactive 
and in the BDS thing, as soon as the assembly voted for this and therefore we should adopt it? Yes. Uh, though that that is a, the government funded this, the province funded this organization that was supposed to do an educational campaign apparently was not very good. Uh, I was there for you were, months yeah. the summer and May several months. Yeah. Around the beginning of September and over No, yeah. Um, and th they argued that organization was that they couldn't take sides and they <laughs> all they could do is present the pros and cons. Um, I think they should have actually been advocates for the uh, commission. Said, look, you're here, your fellow citizens decided this. Here's what they decided. Here are the reasons they decided. There were objections, but this is the recommendation. And um, even if they didn't say it, somebody should have said, trust them. Either, th either think it through yourself if you want to, or trust them. Don't just say, oh, this is too complicated. I'm not going to vote, or I'm going to vote for the current system. That seems to me to be a legitimate, not neutral, but appropriate position that uh, that government-funded authority could have taken. Yeah. Well, um, basically, they uh, had groups. That the chair and staff made a proposal about what the agenda would be, and they had a little executive committee of the citizens who would say, no, we want more time for this, more time for that, in advance you know, um, of each weekend. So that it was not deliberatively decided, but pretty democratically decided what the agenda was going to, how much time there would be for each thing. And people, uh, you could see he was trying, to, I think they had a, like, you can only talk for three minutes now and two minutes then, so they had a little bit of limit, limits on it. Yeah, well, that's a good um, worry. Uh, I think uh, you you can um, – I, I, I'm not I, – I didn't know where you were going with the first part of the question. I'm not sure they are related because I, I have less trouble with the figuring out, you know, what the agenda should be. I think it was decided democratically. People um, – there was some objection that the Northerners didn't have enough – voice and that was adjusted to give them more time, you know, sort of, but the, the question then how to present that and to show, um, I mean, you, you have to trust me <laughs> that it, 
because I'm just telling you that, right? And um, how do you, I can't go to the Ontario or the British Columbia electorate and say, trust me, I've made a good sample here. Uh, I've picked out moments that are representative of what happened. Uh, and I think that's, it doesn't simply reproduce the problem of, of motivation uh, because you're not asking people to go through the same arguments. But it does create a different, I think more manageable, but still difficult problem of showing enough of what the deliberations were like to get people to trust them. I mean, I, I, you don't have to show the STB discussion as such, but and, and that's why one of my objections actually is that against a secret ballot, that everything was, so no member of the assembly actually is on record by name as voting for or against anything. And that then when they went out to defend this later, um, they could say, they, it wasn't, kind of, they could say, I voted for STV, but you didn't really have the sense of who it was voting which way and why. And it seems to me that you, you, you need that if you're going to say, trust, trust us. Yes. Um, so I think it's one of the challenges for uh, deliberative democracy is uh, uh, including uh, people when you have a di uh, diverse group of deliberators. So um, you mentioned there were uh, two people, uh, two First Nations people. people. Uh, I want to know, uh, so did you, you watch all these, the whole thing? No, I can't oh. <laughs> see okay. the whole thing. Yeah, they, they well, uh, it was very respectful um, when they spoke, but I think they maybe spoke twice in the plenary session, almost never. It's, I'm told, although I didn't see these, the small group sessions more. Um, not, you know, that's n not what we would like to see. Uh, I think... Another possible criticism, although I wouldn't, I hate to criticize the, the chair and the staff because they did better than I think most people could do, but there was no cold calling like we do in law school. Michael, what, is, what are the issues in this case? Um, and I think that might have actually, if you tell people in advance in the plenary session, we're going to ask you to say why you're in favor of STV and you're going to go first. You give people advance notice, so it's not cold calling. But it's not just waiting for people to volunteer. That would have helped. The other, just take your, another aspect of your point, I thought you might, uh, some people have objected to, you know, why just the First Nation people? What about the Sikhs? Lots of Sikhs in Vancouver. What about working class people? What about various religions? Once you know, you do women, geography, and First Nations. There are other minorities in class and race and ethnicity and religion that ought to be represented too. And so it was and criticized from that perspective. I, I would, 
it's a little bit of a longer discussion. I, I think I would defend it against that, but there wasn't as much diverse expression of opinion as a good, deliberate Democrat might want. Well, would you would you actually go? How would you design a representation for a group like this? Would you say, okay, First Nation people, they're not going to speak very much, so they ought to have twice as many, or? Okay, but, but would you, should they have had Sikhs represented, do you think? Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah. okay, it's hard because, I mean, where do you, where do you draw the line? I mean, you got to draw yeah. the Good, okay. Well, um, you had your hand up. Yes, yeah. Good, very good and central core question um, in de democratic theory. And um, th in this case, for a reason I'll, I can explain, uh, I do think that the process, it's almost pure procedural justice. That is, given a fair process, if, if it had been a little more representative, if it had not had some of these flaws, whatever it decided would have been just. If they had come up with mixed member proportional, as the Ontario system did, I'd say, okay, that's fine. Single transferable, okay. First past the post, okay. Um, and the, the reason is that the agenda had been um, uh, set, they set it. Uh, so it included the ra a range of reasonable just alternatives. Some you could argue are more or less just than the others, but there was there was nothing that violated the fundamental rights um, of the, of citizens. Now, you could in electoral reform. They could have decided uh, with James Mill that only people over 40 sh men over 40 should vote because they can know what the interests of the young and women are. Um, see why John Stuart Mill then became a feminist if you have a father like that. Uh, that. That would not have been just. Now, 
The reason, uh, I suspect you know this, but maybe not everybody. This is a core question in democratic theory, and de deliberative de Democrats are particularly vulnerable on this because some think that pure, whatever a properly constituted democratic process is, is, is justice. That is, whatever comes out of such a truly deliberative process is just, that that's the standard of justice. The sophisticated forms of this theory um, aren't, don't sound as crude as that, but ultimately they say process is what matters completely. I'm not of that school entirely. Um, I do think that there are independent standards of justice, uh, but it would be a, a kind of hard, a longer story for me to explain why I think no one has the right to impose his or her standards of justice, even if they're true, on other people without going actually through a process, something like a deliberative one. Uh, that is, I don't believe in philosopher kings or uh, presidents who know in their heart what is right and tell us what to do. I think you have to... Um, a law can be just or unjust independently of any process, but it should not be it imposed on other people without trying to persuade or show why uh, the, the law is just. And so it's a further condition in my theory. It isn't sufficient, but it's necessary that there be a deliberative process. Yes. No special group. I guess I was surprised that in your written version, which I really enjoyed enormously, on this particular point, <laughs> I was surprised that you didn't respond to that rhetorical question by not the X and the Y and the B, if you're going to have the A, the B, and the C, by saying, well, you have to look at the reason why we're inclined to have special groups in the first place. And your, your example of the reason is, um, is it, um, why not also those? Then you say, here's the hint of what's really going on here. Some of these groups are no less disadvantaged and no less vulnerable to discrimination than those who are guaranteed representation in the assembly. So what I'm calling the hint here is that you shouldn't be suggesting, well, the reason for allowing groups and the criteria that you look at the group are going to be special disadvantages and historic oppression and so forth. Oddly, to me, you don't do that in your reply to this objection. What you say is, well, there's something to be said for this objection. The reply is basically practical. I mean, it's easier to tell when someone's a woman than when they're, you know, uh, working class or something. That's, isn't that's true, isn't it? Um, well, it, it seems to me. Uh, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes, it's yeah, true. yeah. It seems to me it's irrelevant. I, I, given that yeah. what, what's motivating us here is the disadvantage, is disadvantage 
Well, you, it's yeah. Well, yeah, what, you know, what usually you say when asked a question like this at this point, well, you should read the paper, and you know, that's where I answer it. But unfortunately, you've already read the paper. Uh, uh, I think the, uh, the here's, here's what, what I was trying to say there, is that uh, as a matter of principle, the, the reasons for including, making sure that women were included and First Nations people were included, is the history of discrimination or the, and uh, the, the need also to have those voices in the, in the assembly. And those reasons, I accept the critic on, 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 on grounds of, of principle. Those reasons would apply to some of these other groups that I mentioned, that you mentioned. Uh, so as a matter of principle, I don't have an answer. I mean, we should have included more. It becomes more a practical matter of was it such a serious injustice to exclude them that it would um, mean that we ought to have uh, the, the divisive and extended discussion about where does the working class and the middle class cut off, which religions are True religions or d discriminated against are the, you know, uh, how many of the Sikhs need to be included? They're all in Vancouver. And doesn't that upset the geographical representation? So the, it really, my my answer, I'm, I'm afraid, has to if I'm going to defend the assembly uh, on this point, is a practical one. More that that we can't do everything, basically. And, so, but I could see you're not satisfied with that. Ah, <laughs> oh, well, then I'll agree to anything. That's a wonderful segue. I hope you'll all join me in thanking you.